Well, good morning, Sedaris. Um, I'm so glad that you're here with us. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really eager to just engage this new year with you all together, uh, this year of 2021, and I'm excited for what really God has in store for us this year. Uh, Thanks for participating in that chat question, if you did, and um, don't worry, we're going to continue to get better and better at this. We have a lot more reps that are coming, so we'll we'll, we'll get better and better asking better questions. You guys will get better and better giving responses. Everyone's going to do better, so no. Uh, Thank you for participating if you did. That's great. and it's just great that we can be with you live in your living room. I just uh, just praise God for just whatever magic is taking my face, I guess, <laughs> to the computer up there, which is sending it to Comcast and wherever Comcast is, is sending it to your house, to your internet router, and then projecting my face through the air magically, of course, to whatever device you're watching this on. So uh, that's pretty cool, and I'm really glad to be with you. And uh, all that whole process, it only takes like 20 seconds. And so uh, it's so exciting to know that if I say, uh, I love you and I miss you, that you're going to get that message in 20 seconds. It just warms my heart. So we miss you. We love you. Thanks for being here with us on this Sunday morning. Uh, this Sunday morning, we're going to be working through the first couple verses in the first psalm, in the first psalm. So the book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible, and it takes up a lot of pages. And... Um, so what you do is to find the book of Psalms, just open your Bible up to the middle, start flipping around. Once you get to uh, the Psalms, flip all the way left until you come to the first chapter. Um, or if you're joining us, if you're doing your, um, your Bible on your phone, uh, it's a lot easier. No flipping involved. Okay, so when you get to the book of Psalms, join me in chapter one, okay? Well, I'm going to start today by reading through our psalm. We're not going to get to all of it, but we really need to pick out the theme of flourishing, which is what psalm's all about, in order to understand what we are going to be talking about in the book of Psalm, in Psalm chapter 1 today. And then I'm going to pray, then we're going to get started, okay? So here we go. Psalm 1 reads, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I thank you for what has gone before me in this service already. I thank you for these worship songs that are, are pointing to your creation, pointing to, towards your desire to be with us, to pointing towards your love for us, God, that, that you would look upon us, that, that you would love us, that you would have an intense desire to be with us, and that you would cross heaven and hell to be here and do that. God, we, we as your people want to respond to you in worship. And as we look towards a new year, we, we're, we're asking the question, the spirit within us is prompting us to ask the question, how might we worship you this year, God? How might we do that? And I just pray that you would, you would make Psalm 1 come alive for us today, that we might be able to answer that question in a way that we haven't answered it before, that we might find life worshiping you that we haven't found before. And so I thank you for my friends who are here joining online and pray that you would bless them, pray that you would show up in their midst, that you would do nothing short of turning your face upon them, that they might experience it and be able to respond to it because they're ever changed by it. I pray all of this in the name of your Son, your Son Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to 2021. Um, dumpster fire would be the word that I'd choose as well. Uh, 2021 was rough. It was kind of a commingling of, of, um, of our family life, all of us being crushed together, trying to everybody work full-time and teach full-time, which meant that we did neither full-time, to be honest. Um, really difficult. Uh, so work bled into the nights and education bled into the weekends, and uh, that was 2020 for my family. I'm sure that you had your own, uh, your own bundle of hardships that showed up. But you know what? It's good. God is going to do some great things in 2021. 
We can have hope in, in, in what he can accomplish in 2021 because he did some great things even in the midst of 2020. Um, in, in, in 2020, we learned that God moves no matter what. Um, I personally experienced God in some real ways. He, he grew me, he transformed me in some real ways, albeit very unexpected ways that I didn't see coming. I, I keep hearing stories, more and more stories of different people discovering God's goodness and faithfulness, how those became real to them in the year of 2020. I saw people become Christians in the year of 2020. And so even in the midst of the dumpster fire, God was moving, God was working, because our God is the God who shows up no matter what. As, as we uh, stay at home, he, le- he leaves his home to be with us. As we socially distance, he draws close to us. He is our Emmanuel, our God with us, who overcomes all the obstacles that are put in his way, who pressed through all the barriers that, that Satan might throw into our world, who puts aside every hindrance, and, and he weathers every single storm to be with us. Our God is a God who masters hardship and conquers difficulty in order to be with his people. That's why the Apostle Paul, who experienced hardship and and difficulty more than most Christians, said this, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So dare to hope in God today, church. Dare to hope in God that he can show up in your 2021. Even though we may wait another six months for this vaccine to roll into our shoulders, God is going to have his hand around them at the same time. We, I hope that you're eager to see his blessing this morning. I'm hoping that you're eager to see his flourishing creep into your life this year, this month, this week, even today. So, so let's get started, because Psalm 1 is a psalm that's geared to do just that. Um, you may have picked up on the flourishing theme as I read it. I wanted you to see that. He's about our flourishing. Psalms is a book in the Bible that is a, it's a, a book of prayers that were set to music, so it's a worship book. It's a book of how to worship God. It's, it's written particularly to people who are trying to figure out, how can I flourish in life, is what we find out, actually. And, and, and they're asking the question, and they're considering, maybe worshiping God is connected to my flourishing in life. So Psalms, the book of Psalms, is written to people who are rethinking their life. They're, they're contemplating why they do things, and what they might try next, and, and why they might try that next. And, and so it's actually, it's the best biblical text you can come to at the beginning of the new year. At the beginning of each year, if you start with Psalm 1, you're setting yourself up for success. Because the psalms, like I said, they're a collection of worship songs, but they actually don't start with the worship song at all. No, if you read the first two chapters in the book of Psalms, I'm not even going to call them psalms, the first two chapters in the book of Psalms, they're not psalms. We actually read them and we find they're not prayers. They actually don't have the music notation that all the other psalms have that say, oh, this is, you're supposed to play this one with stringed instruments or this one's this type of song. Those aren't present in these first two at all. No, instead, the book of Psalms opens with wisdom. If, if you read these first two chapters through, they feel much more like the book of Proverbs than the 148 chapters that are going to follow them. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that to engage a life of worship and to, gain, and to engage a life of prayer, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. You need insight as to how it works. You need understanding to the intricacies and nuances of what worshiping God, praying to God, talking to God, actually means and what it actually entails. So as you dare to hope in God this year, as you dare to hope in God, and as you dare to reach out and say, you know what, in spite of everything that's going on, in spite of this waiting that I'm in, I'm going to lean into worshiping God more this year. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. You know, this is what the Spirit does in the hearts and the minds of Christians. He inspires them to reach out and commune with God on deeper and deeper levels all the time. And as we lean into it, I hope that this wisdom can help you this morning. I hope that it can help you worship in 2021. 
And as we read the psalm, you have may, maybe you already were able to pull the wisdom out of it. The, the psalmist tells us that the wisdom we need to worship well and pray well, the catalyst that is going to enable us to worship and pray is our attitude towards the word of God. Our attitude towards the word of God. That's actually what's going to enable us to worship. Not that just we engage it more or try harder to engage it, but that our attitude oriented towards it is, is different perhaps than it has been in the past. You, we, we need a certain outlook on life and, and what this book is in order to engage it correctly in a way that leads to worship. Psalms 1 is telling us that, that someone worships well not just by engaging the word of God, but by treasuring the word of God. By treasuring the word of God. Um, the, the equivalent might be something like this. Um, each year, uh, many people's New Year's resolution is to lose weight by going on a diet. And, and what, is, uh, what, what, what they're finding, and this is from Weight Watchers actually, is that that vision is too small. If you want to lose weight, you need a different vision than going on a diet. You need a greater vision for health generally. You're going to need to up some exercise. You're going to need to adjust your diet. You're going to need to maybe get outside more generally. Your attitude towards your health altogether has to change in order for you to accomplish the goal. And so as some of us might even come to this Bible and say, I want to read this Bible more this year. What you need to do is not just white-knuckle it and try to engage it more. You need to have your attitude towards it be reoriented. And that's what Psalm 1 is going to do for us. So I just want to make it really clear uh, this Sunday morning that I'm not here to shame you on how much you read the Bible. Um, Here's a, a secret. To be a Christian means to always feel like you could read the Bible more and you could pray more. That, that's what being a Christian is. That, that, that's, it's called grow, growth and transformation. We could always be reading our Bible more and praying more. The Holy Spirit is always urging us in that direction towards more and more co- communion with God. And so if you feel those things, don't let the enemy turn those, that, that good desire into shame. Okay, I'm not here to shame you. Uh, several Christian pe- pastors have kind of picked up on this notion that, okay, everybody feels bad about reading their Bible and praying, so I can really lean into that shame and, and try to get them to do stuff. That's not what I'm doing this morning at all. Don't let it turn to shame. J- what, if you have a desire to read your Bible more and pray more, that's actually the spirit working in you, and you should celebrate. Celebrate it. Okay, so, so don't let it, Satan use that to shame you. So I'm not here to shame you this morning. I am here to help you find the key that will unlock the door to a joyful experience of God's word this morning. The psalmist isn't trying to get people to read their Bibles more, actually, guys. He's not trying to do that. He's writing to a population that didn't have Bibles. This is bigger. This is more abstract than just reading our Bible. This is engaging God's word and our attitude towards it. There must be something much deeper here. I'll tell you on the front end that, that the deeper thing often does lead to us engaging our, our Bible more, just like when we have the right concept surrounding our health, we end up dieting better and exercising more. But it's not the primary thing. There's something bigger and greater that we need to orient towards that, that joyfully experiencing the Bible will be a part of. And, and that something deeper is really in just the first two verses of this psalm. That's all we really have time for today. I wanted to really just unpack both of these chapters, but as I just sat in verses one and two, I, I thought, man, there's so much here that we can unpack together, um, that, that, that we need to unpack together, okay? So what's happening in these first two verses? Our psalmist is giving us wisdom, and his first wisdom goes like this. Our happiness as the people of God, our happiness is in peril. It's in peril. In fact, that's a great way to begin a discussion on worship. Our happiness is in peril. The, the, the text actually starts off with the phrase, happy is the one. Okay, happy is the one, which is interesting. It's a beautiful phrase. It's a phrase that Jesus picks up on and uses in his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. But it says, happy is the one, and then it follows some, with some negative comments who doesn't do this, doesn't do this, doesn't do this. That means that our happiness is in peril. And if we're not careful as the people of God, it will be pulled away. This might jump out at a few of us because it's saying this. 
Happiness is meant to be the byproduct of worship. Happiness is the byproduct of worship. Happiness is the byproduct experience in the midst of walking with God, not just the end result. Like you, you walk a hard road throughout your life of, of, of difficulty and sadness and moroseness, and then at the end, you get to heaven and now you have happiness. No, what, is the, what does the first verse say? How happy is the one, not how, not how happy will be the one. This is the audacious claim of following the God of the Bible, that following him is actually the path to happiness. That might be a new thought for you, that God wants your happiness this year in 2021, that, that you following him is going to be your happiness. Did you know that God is concerned with and deeply invested in your happiness? Perhaps you've never considered that before. Religion is often thought of as the place where, where people go and happiness dies and, and they just kind of bear down and, and make it through life till they get that prize at the end. But that's not what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying that the happiness of the people of God is part of God's desire for them and that involves a relationship with God's word. Why is this true? Well, quickly back up to the creation. We sung about it in that first song today. Great, great. Great choice, Jordan. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we discover that, that God is the author of the universe, including all of humanity. All of humanity, which means as our designer, he knows how we can best flourish on earth. He designed us. He knows how we work. He knows how we function. He knows how we operate. But what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is that humans decided that they could figure out how to flourish on their own. And they decided that they would do that, that they didn't want God's help when it came to what they had to do in order to flourish in the world. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. It led to fracturing, led to pain, it led to misery. This is very similar to um, my cat. Um, we, we, part of 2020 is us getting a cat. And this cat always comes up to us and you can just see it in her. She's begging for a cat treat, begging for a cat treat. But we know that if we give her more than three or four of those things, she's going to run away often into a corner somewhere, be miserable for about 10, 15 minutes, and then throw up, okay? Uh, and so we don't give her all the cat treats that she wants. You see, we have more wisdom about what it means to be a cat than even she does. And, and so even on an even grander scale, God is way bigger than humans than humans are than, uh, c compared to cats, he knows way better how to be a human than we do. He designed us so he knows what makes us tick. He showed up on the scene in the person of Jesus and he proved it. Lived the perfect life. And now we are presented with a choice. We can look to God for how to flourish, how to experience that blessed happiness that, uh, that accompanies his word. Or we can continue to try our own ideas of human flourishing, which lead to Misering and sometimes even vomiting in a corner like the cat. <laughs> and for those of us who trust God, okay, who follow God, as we experience more and more of this satisfaction in alignment with obeying his word of, of what he tells us, how we can flourish in this world, it, it, he's actually more glorified in this world through that. that. That's why he's concerned with our happiness because, because uh, he is more and more glorified uh, in in the world as we are more happy and more satisfied in him. Uh, the more happy and satisfied we are in him, the more people around us look in and they're like, this is a little crazy. This God must be worth my time. He's getting glory. He's getting glory through you. Not necessarily through things that you're doing, but simply you just enjoying your relationship with him. So following God isn't meant to be a killjoy at all. That's not what it's about. It's meant to be a happy, joyful thrill. With hardship and suffering? Sure, absolutely. But it's a happy suffering. A little bit of a conundrum here. And at the beginning of, of his wisdom for how to worship and pray to God, the psalmist pushes back against the broken ways that we seek to attain human flourishing apart from God. That's what he does in verse 1, okay? Uh, that this, what we do that puts our own happiness in, in peril. That's what he's talking about. And he starts in the negative, and he's doing this, he's starting in the negative because he, he's going to make a really cool transition as he moves to verse 2. We're going to see that. So we're, we're going to sit in the negative first, meaning um, how not to be happy, and then we're going to move to the positive that he tells us how to be happy, okay? 
First, he says, happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Your translation may say, uh, blessed is the one. Blessed and and happy are are synonymous terms in the Hebrew. To live a blessed life was to live a happy life uh, in the Hebrew Hebrew scriptures. And um, the CSB translates this word the way that might be in, in your translation as advice because this is actually the Hebrew idiom for gaining counsel from someone else, for gaining someone else's advice. It's, it's what the Hebrew idiom was for gaining counsel, was to, to um, walk in the way of someone else, ask them for advice. And this is what the psalmist really wants us to ask of ourselves. Who are we seeking counsel from in this life? Do they fear God and his word? Are we asking people who who don't fear God for advice on how to live our life? More subtly, how are we engaging the, the, the dozens of things that are trying to influence how we think about life generally? How are we gauging uh, the news, podcasts, social media, TV shows, movies, blogs? These are all uh, content. Sometimes we're tricked into thinking they're entertaining content, but what they're actually doing is they're trying to influence how you think about the world. They're trying to define for you what's real in the world and how you should respond to it. All these avenues are really deep down at their core trying to give humans advice for how to live. We watch the news and it's not just the events that they're telling us. They're telling us how we should react to the events based on a reality that that they're standing in. And you can go to different news sites that are appealing to different realities and telling you to react in different ways to the same events. Where are we seeking our advice from? Second, uh, happy is the one who does not stand in the pathway with sinners. Now, uh, we're all sinners, okay? We're all sinners. This isn't a, a vilification of, of, of the world, necessarily. In, in Hebrew, this term is, is used of people who have no regard for God. No, no regard for God and his plan of human flourishing. Who, who say, you know what? I'm really not about all of that they're not necessarily anti it, but they're like, eh, that's not for me, okay? That's really not for me. They don't really have any regard for what God wants to accomplish here in the world. And, and this, this term, the pathway, is the Hebrew word direct. Literally, uh, when it's used literally, it always refers to a path, like a road. But when it's used metaphorically like this, it almost always refers to the conduct and the decisions we make as we journey through life. So, so happy is the one who does not stand in the pathway of sinners. That's what it says here. What it really means is happy is the one who, do, who does not mimic or copy the conduct or decisions of those who have no regard for God, who say God isn't really for them. We see, um, what does this look like? Uh, this kind of looks like in our life when we see our, our non-Christian or not-so-serious Christian uh, coworkers excelling in their career because they're kind of cutting corners, and we decide to do it too. We see them enjoying uh, the romantic relationships we've always enjoyed or we've always wanted by sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. So we decide to as well. Uh, they, they, they seem to have a great time abusing alcohol and drugs, so, so we try it too. But Psalmist is telling us that our happiness is in peril when we mimic the conduct and the decisions of those who have no regard for God, okay? Third, Happy is the one who does not sit in the company of mockers. Who does not sit in the company of mockers. Sitting in the company always refers to deep friendship in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Just sharing a meal with with somebody was a significant action of dedication and of friendship in in the Hebrew culture. Now, in in one sense, it's great if we have close friendships with non-Christians, Uh, Jesus himself was called a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. But he also refused to be associated with those who would mock true worshipers. He would refuse to be associated with the people who would look at the true worshipers of God and then mock. He wouldn't have meals with them. These are the Pharisees and the scribes of his day. You know, they, they were often upset. They're like, why is Jesus having meals with sinners but not us? It's because they were the mockers of true Christian worshipers. The great irony. 
So deep, deep friendship with those who mark disciples of Jesus, our psalmist is telling us, very unwise. Um, we, we may want to be accepted by folks, these folks, these mockers, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they have power, money, fame, fun, the relationships that we want to have access to. But eventually, because they mock Christianity, if it comes out that you're a Christian, you're not going to be able to access those things unless you say that you're on board with them. Your happiness is going to be at stake. It's in peril at that point in time. So our, our wise psalmist wants us to evaluate and consider who we get our advice from. Who we get our advice from, what's informing our decisions, uh, and, and whose company we keep. Okay, that, that's the negative. And then he moves on to the positive, which is really cool. Because if you were to ask the question, okay, so what does the happy person do? Where do they get their advice from? Where do they learn their conduct from? What, what company do the happy people actually keep? You would answer, righteous people. Right? Wrong. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. He doesn't say that at all. He changes categories for us. The, the, the subjects of the negative definition of happiness were, were crooked people. And instead of the subjects of the positive being upright people, he changes categories on us. And he says this instead. He says, instead, how happy is the one whose delight is in the Lord's instruction and who meditates on it day and night. This is what I absolutely love about the Bible. Because you often hear the charge uh, that the Bible is the creation of man designed to keep people uh, subjugated to the powers that be. You know, this whole religion is an instrument of the elite to control the masses kind of thing. And, and to be honest, this is what the Catholic Church did for a long, long time in the West. And that's something that we really should lament. But this very dynamic happens all the time in Scripture where, where you get to the point where the obvious conclusion, the obvious and natural conclusion would be we need to obey the religious authorities. But the religious authorities make a category change at this point. They skip over themselves and they point to God and said, they, con they consistently say, we are the messengers. If you like what you hear, that's great. You need to go to the source material itself. That's what you need to do. That's what happens throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures until we come to one, the, the one exception, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he says, look at me. I and the Father are one. I am the Son of Man. <laughs> Hebrews were really upset by this because the messengers never did that in their scriptures. The messengers always made that category change and said, look to God, not us, look to God. Jesus says, look to me. Got him killed. But we, we, so we have a category change here. And instead of happy is the one who listens to righteous people, our psalmist says happy is the one who goes to the source and delights in the very word of God who delights in the very word of God. You know, so we're talking about the word of God. Your, your translation might actually say instruction there. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is actually Torah, which is the word of God to the Hebrews at this point in Hebrew history. God's word given to Israel so that they might flourish in the world, in their society and in the world generally. But if we think that to get to flourishing, we should just read our, our Bibles more. We haven't dwelt in this verse long enough. Because that is not the wisdom of the psalmist. That would be to skip uh, the first half of verse 2 and just move straight on to the second half, which talks all about our meditation in the word of God. We, we, we frequently do this with the Bible, by the way. I'm not sure it's because we're hurried or we're Americans or what, but we, we frequently mine these pages for what to do. We're always looking in these pages for what to do that we skip over and we miss who we need to be. And that's what the Bible is really up to on a grand scale. The Bible is really trying to tell you who you are and who you need to be. So, and, and sometimes we come to it and we say, I need information about what to do. And the Bible says, hold up, I, I'm not ready to go there yet. I'm more concerned about who you are as a person. And that's because what we do is to flow out of who we are. Always, always. Um, Jesus used this metaphor when he was rebuking the Pharisees at one time who had the same problem. He said, uh, you guys wash the, the outside of the cup, meaning you guys do good things. Um, you guys wash the outside of the cup to look good to people, but the inside of the cup is, is dirty. It's dirty, meaning their hearts were dirty. He says, uh, 
Instead, wash the inside of the cup so that the outside of the cup might be clean. Start with your heart so that then your actions will be good actions. Those actions will follow. That's the metaphor that Jesus used. And, and I love that Jesus uses a metaphor that breaks down so clearly. You know, like, how are you going to wash an inside of a cup and then the outside of the cup just becomes clean all of a sudden? You know, I just love that Jesus used metaphors too and they obviously break down, but he can still communicate the point that he's trying to communicate. And it doesn't make it any less true or any less valid, which is clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean. Clean insides lead to clean outsides. A renewed heart, a renewed person leads to renewed actions in the world. In the world. <clears throat> There's truth to this. Um, there's truth to this, and this is a hard truth for me to stomach myself, actually, because um, I love doing. Um, I really enjoy lists. I enjoy getting things done. I enjoy checking things off lists. I, I can take any regimen, and I can, I can do it. Uh, last year, at some point in 2020, I worked out every day for 22 weeks in a row. It was so stupid, okay? So every day, I just did it. I white-knuckled it, and I just did it. I love doing things, and I can white-knuckle things and get them done, but, and I've done it in the past with the Bible. <laughs> but this is the tendency that counterintuitively limits encountering the Word of God in a meaningful way because we focus on the doing and not the being. We try to, to white-knuckle it for a bit, but at the end of a few weeks or a month, we discover that we're, that we're actually the same person. We're actually the same person. I think many of us found this out in quarantine, perhaps. I believe many of us hoped that with our extra time in quarantine, we were going to spend a lot more time reading the Bible. And for one reason or another, it didn't just actually quite happen. Focusing on doing instead of being. This word here, delight, it's a word of being. Delight. It's a word of being. Delighting in the word. Our delights are part of who we are. They're tied to our being. They're tied to our will in a very intrinsic way. But here's the hard thing about our delights, because they are so tied to us, we don't necessarily seem to be in control of them. What is it that set the delights in your life? It's, an, it's a very interesting question, isn't it? isn't it? Why do you love the things that you love? Uh, sometimes we think that we love the things that we love because our parents set that for us, and so our 20s is a, a time where we try to escape. Um, uh, we cut off all the ties of, of any authority figure we've had in the past so that we can figure out what our delights really are. But then even as everybody comes back, everybody's delights are very different and some are the same. What, what actually sets those delights? One person delights in mountain biking while another delights in hiking. One delights in reading while another delights in video games. One person delights in the crown, uh, the other delights in the office. Now both have to watch the crown on Netflix, of course, sadly. One, one person delights in their career, another in their family. One delights in God's word, while another delights in Charles Dickens. Those aren't necessarily opposed, by the way. You can delight in both if you do. Love Charles Dickens. What actually is it that sets the delights in our life? That's what we're asking here. That's what the psalmist wants us to ask here. How do we force delight in something that we don't actually like that much? It's impossible. It's a scary question, what sets our delights. Why? Because we know that we're not in control of a lot of things in life. But if we're honest ourselves... When we find that we aren't in control of some of our key, our, our key and core desires in our life, our most intimate ones, it's a little scary. We're not in control. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is you're not going to meditate on something day and night unless you think it's great, unless you delight in it. Okay, the psalmist is not promoting a miserable monasticism here. Remember, he's, he has our happiness in mind. He says, our happiness stems from a delight or, de or a desire that we might not exactly have. What are we supposed to do then? It's a great question. It's a great question. I'm going to tell you what we can do here. We're going to close out our time. It's going to be a little more time here, guys, but I'm just going to give us four things that we lean into in order to begin to solve this conundrum, this solution. The first is that we must keep open the possibility that God's word is delightful. We must keep that possibility open. All of it. That all of it is delightful. You see, Jesus shows up on the scene as God's word in the flesh. There's a couple arguments here. This is kind of the Jesus argument. Jesus shows up on the scene as God's word in the flesh. 
Meaning that whatever God's message is to humans is now embodied in human form in his most clear way, in its most precise way, in its most clearly illustrated way, God's word came before us. And so if you read about Jesus in the gospel accounts and you say, man, I really, really like that Jesus. Well, you know what? He said he was a fulfillment of everything that was written before that. He said he was a fulfillment of God's word. And so if you love what Jesus looks like, if you actually come to understand what these, uh, the rest of these pages are, are talking about, you're going to come to love those too because Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of it. I am the most clear representation of what those pages are all about. Um, there's other arguments that we can make. Here's an argument from, from my experience of, of why we must keep open the possibility that, that God's word is delightful. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in a, a suburban a mega church, large church, and, and over the summers I had the opportunity to go out and do kind of mission work where um, I would go to other countries and I would help them bring the gospel to their peace people, which is a bit ironic because I didn't really have a full grasp of the gospel myself. Uh, that's neither here nor there. But when I showed up in Mexico, I found out, oh my gosh, these these Mexican men and women, they love the scriptures more than I do. They're delighting in it. They think it's the best thing ever. They have this one Bible that they got and they've had it their whole life. It's just ripped to shreds because of how much they have been reading it. I went to Costa Rica, same thing. The Costa Ricans, they loved the scriptures. They, they loved the scriptures. And I'd come back home and I'd look at my white, suburban, middle-class mega church and they didn't love the scriptures like that. Then I went to China, and then these Chinese men and women, they loved the scriptures. Then I went to Kenya, they were in love and were delighted with the scriptures. In Africa, they have the Old Testament just essentially memorized because they are a, they, they are cultures that love storytelling, and so when, you, when uh, they experience a story, they memorize it, and they can actually, they are much more familiar with oral tradition than we are, and so they just had the word of God seeping out of them because they had essentially just known it all. I went to India. Same thing happened there. People were in love and delighting in the word of God. I learned to love the Lord through his word, through these people, not even necessarily my church at home. That's how I learned to love the scriptures, where these people abroad, poor, who delighted in the word of God. They loved it. So we must keep up the possibility that God's word is delightful. Second, we ask God to change our desires and our delights, okay? This is the big one, and, and this is what we're going to spend a little bit of time in, in communion doing. We need to ask God to change our desires and change our delights. Remember Adam and Eve. We are not primary be beings. We are secondary beings. And in order for us to experience life in the fullness, in, in its fullest, we must look to the designer of life for guidance. We must do that. This means that, that we must behold the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make a different choice than they did. They said they could figure out human flourishing on their own. We have to say, that experiment has run its course. We can't. That idea is bankrupt. Perhaps in 2020, that's when you realized that. When you're like, man, this whole the idea that, that we can figure out life on our own and it's going to go great and we're going to be happy. Maybe 2020 showed you that, you know, that's not exactly the case. That's a bankrupt idea. Sometimes it takes us going bankrupt in our own life to realize that we should stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and look to God instead. King David came to that point once. He, um, he slept with a woman who was another man's wife. Then he got her pregnant. Then he had that man killed. Then it became public knowledge. Then the baby died. Um, through these events, David learned that his desires and his delights not only were disordered, but they were deadly. They're completely deadly. They killed a lot of people. And his, his conclusion was that his desires and his delights needed to be changed, and he wasn't the one to do it. He had to look, God, look to God for help and ask God to do it. I'm going to read you this prayer that he prays after all this is over. This is what he says in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. 
completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, that was soap, and, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and, joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. He's confessing in these first nine verses and then in verse 10, he asked God to change his desires and his delights. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Give me joy in your plan of salvation. Give me delight in your salvation and sustain me by, by giving me, give me a willing spirit, he says. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. You see, this isn't just a prayer asking for forgiveness. It starts off that way. But it culminates And David pleading to God, God, change my heart. God, give me a steadfast spirit. God, give me a willing spirit. God, let me, when I think of your salvation, may that invoke joy in my life. You change my delights. This is the step we miss. I think we we miss it so often. We we miss that we just, people say, you know, I I don't want to read the Bible. And that's, Totally reasonable and understandable. But the, the proper response is we just need to ask God. We ask God for this. We, we miss this so often. We have to view God as this surgeon who can reach out of heaven with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. This huge, beefy arm is how I picture it. I don't know how you picture it. But, but in, in his fingers is a small little scalpel that he opens us up and he can change our heart's desires and change our heart's delights and he can close us back up and send us back into the world so we can go out rejoicing in his word, rejoicing in his salvation. We have to ask him to do that. Uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, spoke to this dynamic a couple times in his short letter. He said, at the very beginning, if anybody wants wisdom, you just got to ask God for it. It's chapter one. Chapter four, he says, um, if uh, you, uh, you have a desire, uh, you have wants, but you do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask God for it. And this is the reason many of us don't have a delight in God's word. We haven't asked God to change our desires with regard to it. We haven't asked God to give us a clean heart that delights in his word. So ask. Ask right now. If you're coming to the word and you don't want to read it, ask God to change your heart and to change your desires. If the same thing happens on the next day, ask God to change your desires. If it happens on the next day, ask God to change your delights and desires. The Christian life is one of asking God over and over and over and over and over again to change our hearts and change our delights so that we might enjoy his word and relationship with him. Why do we have to keep asking? Because we keep on sinning. We, we keep on sinning. I'm not saying like sin resets everything. I have to start from the beginning. But, but we keep on sinning. And so we keep having to ask God for his continual grace to clean our heart like David's talking about, to restore a steadfast spirit within us, to change our heart, to give us joy in salvation, to give us joy in the word once again. The Christian gospel message says this, that we are at the mercy and grace of God with regards to our desires. We can't change them, but he can. And he's the only one that can for our good. All right, that brings us to number three. We need to, we must broaden the scope of engaging the word. Broaden the scope of engaging the word of God. Um, I talked about this earlier. The, the, the writing, the, the writer of Psalm 1 is, is talking to an audience that definitely didn't have scriptures in their homes. Perhaps a, a significant percentage of them were even completely illiterate. How can he encourage them to delight in the word of God and meditate on it day and night then? 
Well, he's leaning heavily on the oral transmission of God's word. He's talking about how Israel leaned into God's word as congregations. He's talking about church. He's talking about what we're doing right now. You're, you're, you're hearing me talk about the word of God and tell you the truths of the word of God. That's why we teach through the word of God on, on Sunday mornings. We start here in the hopes that, that we can treasure, learn to treasure the word of God with one another, that, that we can all learn how to pursue the word of God on our own throughout the rest of the week. It's church. We have to broaden our scope of what it means to engage the word. When you go to church, you're engaging the word of the Lord. If you don't want to go to church, Ask God to change your desires and your delights. This is why we do cohorts. We're trying to create environments where we can unpack and discuss God's word with one another. Hopefully we're engaged in this task of helping one another delight in God's word so that we can flourish. We say that cohorts are where the rubber meets the road when it comes to discipleship, which means that we need to be checking in with one another and really asking the question of how are you delighting in God's word? How did you do that over the course of the last week? What seemed to get in the way of that? How can I help you? What didn't you understand? How can I provide some encouragement that you might desire and delight in the word of God? Everything we do is really pointing towards this because once we delight in the word of the God, our entire lens for worship opens up. Entire world for worshiping God opens up. And delighting in God turns into engaging it whenever you can engage it. And so to a population that's highly literate and has the blessing of having a copy of God's word in our homes, uh, several perhaps, Copies of God's word in our homes, it means engaging it in our very home. All right, fourth. We must redefine the win of of engaging the word for information gathering to communion with God. We must redefine the win of why we engage this from gaining knowledge, which is still good, but to gaining access to communion with God gaining knowledge as we transition to gaining access with communion with God. Out of that communion is where the knowledge flows. Uh, Too often we settle for this goal in and of itself. I'm going to read the Bible in one year. Now that's a great, great goal. I've done it many times. I'm doing it again this year. But it's not the win in and of itself. Getting all the check marks for 365 days isn't the win in and of itself, although it feels good if you're a type A like me. If you're not a type A like me, uh, it's going to crush you. It's going to just kill you, okay? But, uh, <laughs> but as we do it, we need to really envision why we're doing it. Is it to gain knowledge? Is it to gain answers for yourself? Is it to gain answers for others? Is it so you can figure out what to do in life? Those are all great reasons to look to the Bible, and often we, we will pull out the scriptures because we do love these, and we are delighting in them to say, what, what does this have to say about what I'm going through? But they aren't the ultimate reason why we should engage God's word. It's called God's word because it's God starting a conversation with us. What the Bible says, God says. And when you read the Bible, what the Bible says, God says to you. That's, it's the beginning of a conversation. That's what it's all about. It's the opening of a conversation and, and hopefully communion with the God who created everything which is incredible. That's why this wisdom is at the beginning of a book of prayers. We need to see God's word as the beginning of a conversation that we are responding to. Now, you don't necessarily need to understand everything that's happening in here, actually, in order to do that. You just need to come with a heart of worship. That that is literally a heart that says, God wants to speak to me. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. This is, I mean, it's at the beginning of a book of prayers that we might listen and that we might respond. But God's word isn't only in these scriptures as well. It's also in nature. This is something our society has really lost. We, we talked about this a lot at the beginning of, of Sedaris Church, you know, how, how nature is actually God reaching out to us and starting a conversation with us, that God is present in his nature and trying to turn our hearts towards him, turn our minds towards him, turn our delights towards him. He created everything by his word. 
Creation is the beginning of a conversation to humans. It's a crazy, it's an even audacious claim to think that this creator of the universe loves us, knows us, wants to have a conversation with us, but that's what all of nature and all of these scriptures point to. That's what he tells us. It doesn't make sense to me. I look at myself and I'm like, I don't know if I'm really worth your energy, God, but he says, you are. I'm starting conversation with you in this book and in the creation I started. Continue it. We need wisdom for how to continue it. That's what this psalms help us with. So, this world is broken, but God wants to have relationship with us in the midst of it. As we live in it, as we work in it, as we create within it. It's full of hardships, it's full of suffering, it's full of viruses and breakups and oppressions. It's full of evil desires of humanity. And, but here's the thing. Psalms 1 and 2 are a single unit. Most, every scholar points to it. Both It's wisdom literature. We don't dip into a prayer and a worship song until Psalm 3. At the end of Psalm 2, it says this, All who take refuge in him are happy. You see, consuming God's word is not an end in and of itself. God starting a relationship, a relationship with us as we live in a broken world is going to be, that's the end. He wants to sit with us in the midst of it. He wants to put out his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and give us refuge in the midst of this world. So as we expect the first six to nine months of 2021 to look a lot like the 10 months that we just went through, Dare to hope in God. Dare to look to his word as refuge. Ask him to change your desires. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him that he would put a heart within you, a spirit within you to delight in his word so that you might find refuge in him and be truly happy and flourish no matter what circumstances this year has ahead for us. Pray with me. Father God, we come to you as your people. Um, asking how we might follow you this year. And I just thank you for my brothers and sisters and, and how yours, you have sent your spirit to be within their hearts, within their minds, to, to help them ask that question right now in a new way, in an exciting way. I pray that you would give them a vision for 2021, that you would help them see what isn't there and what isn't in their present reality in terms of a relationship with you and that you would change their delight, that you would change their hearts to be rejoicing in your salvation, to be hearts that rejoice in your word. God, come alongside your people now. Help them encourage one another towards delighting in your word. Help them encourage and talk to their own hearts to convince their own hearts to delight in your word. And we pray that the arm of a surgeon would come into our lives and heal us. Heal our brokenness, heal us of our waywardness. Renew in us and restore in us hearts that delight in you that we might worship. Would you do it today? Would you do it tomorrow? Would you do it every day in 2021? May we ask you every day for fresh hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.